and welcome to Beyond Portalcast, a collaboration of two Avatar podcasts. My name is Marilyn. I'm the host and editor over at Beyond Bending Podcast. And I am Colin, the host and editor over at The Legend of Portalcast. And Colin and I have decided to join forces to talk about Rise of Kiyoshi. Yes. Uh, so much to freak out about. I'm going to, I promise... I'm going to do better this time. I'm not going to get swept <laughs> away by the emotions of this book, <laughs> but I still might. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, it's hard to not spew out everything we think of. So the chapter we're going to be starting today is chapter two. Nine years later. Nine years later. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Or no, actually, you know what we need for this is we need the SpongeBob voice. Nine years later. <laughs> the title card. <laughs> uh, what do you know, Colin? The title gives it away. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, uh, of course, this is going to be taking place nine years after the event of the first chapter. So uh, Marilyn and I have been, we're kind of swapping roles this time, whereas uh, she did the kind of overview and outline in the first episode. I'm going to be taking the reins for this one, and we're going to kind of see what we like about both of our styles and see how they all blend together. It's kind of the fun part of doing this like combination and everything. It's pretty wild. <laughs> I'm excited to see what you did. <laughs> Let's do this. All right. So we set the stage, uh, of course, nine years later. Insert the SpongeBob title card with the Frenchman voice. <laughs> the opening line of this, to Kiyoshi, it was very clear. This was a hostage situation. Silence was the key to making it through to the other side, waiting with complete and total passivity. Neutral Jing. So this is the line that opens up this second chapter. And I wanted to kind of pull this one out in particular because it immediately sets the stakes. It shows a perspective from Kiyoshi's point of view. And we get to see the embodiment of what it means to be an earthbender, neutral Jing. And I just think that it's such a like great powerhouse of a line that opens up this chapter. And FCE does this so much throughout the book. He knocks you away with like these like amazing one-liners, which is what leads us into Kiyoshi in a bullied state. Uh, and the digs on her mom and dad. I thought those were pretty rough. Oh my <laughs> like gosh. The... <laughs> and it's interesting because, of course, we are so used to seeing the Avatar in kind of a position of power. You know, with Aang and the way that he started, even though he was still had a lot to learn, he could still do like crazy airbending feats, like right out the gate. And with Korra, we saw someone who was like firebending and earthbending when she was like... <laughs> like four years old, not even. <laughs> and with Kyoshi, besides kind of this like initial glimpse that we got in the first chapter, this is like really from her perspective, she's older and she's being bullied, which is just crazy to me because so much of our perception of Kyoshi is that already formed opinion of Kyoshi as this strong like feminist icon of like the Avatar universe. And now it's like, we're seeing this incredibly bullied kid, which I don't think is, you know, it's just clearly intentional, but the scene that we're kind of looking at here is Kyoshi on an errand to get the last coveted jar of pickled spicy kelp. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jianzu is like, I need that artisanal shit. Go get me that last jar of uh, pickled spicy kelp. Or not Jianzu, Yoon needs it, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but you know, she is being held hostage in this situation with Aoma, Suzu, and Jay. They're holding this jar of this pickled spicy kelp hostage. But what's really interesting is showing the telltale signs of the class structure of the Earth Kingdom. One of the first things that they are pointing out to her is a servant girl living up in this mansion. You know, you've never had to really lift a finger. All of these digs that are coming from this almost kind of jealous perspective, it's seeing like a difference in a way that we always saw in the show as well. So I don't know, Marilyn, what were some of your thoughts on kind of like the way that this scene was set in those initial details of Kyoshi being this bullied figure and the way that these kids were bullying her? Oh gosh, um, when I reread this chapter, I feel like the first time I read this book, I was kind of like watching a movie, but it was out of focus. And doing this podcast with you and slowing down and really like, I think I looked up a couple words because my vocabulary isn't that great. And so like FCE is like testing me and like <laughs> the crowning bridge, like all of these terms. I felt like I was definitely seeing the chapter. There's no more haziness. I could see it very clearly. There's a lot of themes that he touches on. There's like themes of power, hierarchy, oppression. They're 16, right? Like these kids are 16. Mm -hmm. Kiyoshi, she just tells us what happened in the past and they've always given her shit. They've always mm -hmm. bullied her. And even at a young age, you see, I feel like it's not really talked about when people are adults. They don't really want to talk about it. Like the phrase kids will be kids is really stupid because even when you are a kid, there is like this establishment of power, this establishment of dominance. And like I've definitely been there and I don't know if like have you been there? Like as a kid, you're in these situations where you are bullied or there is like the shift in power and it's very uh, like it damages you like psychologically, sometimes physically and shapes you into the person you are today. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get bullied as much. I got bullied like during my middle school years when I was like really trying to find more of myself. And it was I think it was just it was people who. I was very outward and there were certain people that just like clashed with the way that I was very positive and <laughs> like very hyper with everything. But yeah, it like when that happens, it makes you feel like there's something wrong with me and I need to kind of become more withdrawn and Kiyoshi saying neutral Jang kind of waiting to see what happens and kind of not try to interfere was something that I definitely found myself doing because I didn't want to make things get any worse than they actually were. So it was easier to stay silent and just kind of see how things played out. So you practice neutral Jing? Yes. See, that's why, <laughs> that's why like, you know, I saw this show when I was in high school. I was like, oh my God, it's hit me in the feels. There's so many ways that I didn't realize why it was hit me in the feels. But like, especially looking back, I'm like, ah, now I know. <laughs> Yeah, and then I definitely relate with Kiyoshi. Like, she really hates these kids that she grew up with, and they've always bullied her. They've always, I don't know, like, out of spite, out of jealousy, out of pettiness, they use her status against her. Like, she talks about it, like the hypocrisy, how they always talk about their parents, and it's just mm. like rubbing the salt in the wound and Kiyoshi has so many wounds. There's so much salt and so much shade in this chapter. There really <laughs> is. There is so much shade in this chapter. It's fucking amazing. 
it's like this is what happens when it's just all teenagers (laughs) so much angst so much yes (laughs) inner turmoil Zuko pops out of nowhere hey this isn't your franchise (laughs) (laughs) oh wait but it is oh okay I'll go back (laughs) yeah I mean you're absolutely right one of the lines that I wrote down here was uh I believe it was Aoma who says Precious servant girl doesn't give a lick about farming matters. She's got her cushy job in the fancy house. She's too good to get her hands dirty. <laughs> Just like throwing the shade and being like so fucking like, ah, oh, it is like so teenage in that way in such a wonderful way. <laughs> um, what's really interesting is that we get Kiyoshi's perspective too. And that's like the really, this is the bread and butter of this medium of being able to have a book and a specifically in the genre of a young adult novel is that we get Kiyoshi's internal narrative and how she is kind of reacting to this. And what I really liked overall too in this book is that like FCE doesn't like He's not ham-fisted with too much of this perspective, which can be a real downfall for this genre because sometimes it's like, well, they felt this. Oh, they felt this. And it it becomes something that's like too heavy-handed. But to kind of reel it back in here, Kiyoshi says, but what Jay and Suzu conveniently neglected was that every plot of arable land near the village and every seaworthy boat down at the docks belonged to a family. This is a system of inheritance, but what's interesting is that it's the same shit, but on different planes of existence. These same kind of things that were happening, again, in so much of Earth Kingdom society that we've seen in the show, the perfect representation of that are the rings of bossing say. You have this kind of caste system of like, you have the lower ring, you have the middle ring, and you have the upper ring. Everyone has kind of got their own challenges and they're all kind of dealing with things, but there always is like perspective of like they're either lesser than they don't deserve to be up there or there's like there's kind of always this tension between them because of that such distinct separation. But even though there is a royal family that inherits like the throne, so too is this inheritance of the land. And Yokoya as a town is that kind of microcosm of that. And you get to see that there are these different levels, but these kids are really not pleased about kind of Kiyoshi's position in it, especially since she doesn't have a family. She basically had nothing. And then she got to get this like amazing setup by living in like a mansion. So (laughs) it's kind of like this idea of like, oh, well, why couldn't that be me? So their reaction is to flaunt what they do have. And to kind of really be able to lean in heavily, because at the end of the day, that is truly all that they have and they know it. And that is my favorite part about this whole kind of interaction leading up to this point. Yeah. And then I really like how we get a sense of Kiyoshi's character. Like even though her peers despise her for this position that she holds, there's kind of like jealousy going both ways. Like Kiyoshi definitely envies them having Mm. a family. They envy her being comfortable in a mansion. And it's just like empathy is what I think about first. We'll get to it later, but Kiyoshi, she's telling us like, I kind of pity Aoma. I feel bad for her. Mm. And you see Kiyoshi, she just like has this empathy that her other peers lack. And maybe it's just like adolescence. It's kind of like this narcissistic depression that kids kind of go through sometimes. Like I've definitely gone through Mm. where 
I'm so deep in my negative thoughts that I don't really have the energy to care about other people. And I feel like her peers are going through that. Like there definitely mm. is, you see like this lack of communication with her and her peers. And like, of course, she doesn't owe these kids anything. Like they've been horrible to her their whole lives. But you see Kiyoshi kind of ready to, you know, bury the hatchet if they ever mm. do choose to be better people. This is chapter two, and Kiyoshi is like the best character ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you already get to see those qualities of her as an avatar, I think, really showing out like in so many ways. There's just such yeah. great foreshadowing in this book. Ah, oh, it's so good. <laughs> so as the scene kind of transitions, we get, you know, this amazing kind of through line at the end of this section uh, before a paintbrush stroke on the page. It says there, they'd arrived at last, the Avatar's estate in all its glory. And then that leads us into really building the visual of this place that we're going to be spending, you know, a good amount of the narrative in here in the beginning. I want to read out this paragraph too, because it's just, it does such a great job of breaking that down. The mansion that Master Jianzu built to house the savior of the world was designed in the image of a miniature city. A high wall ran in a perfect square around the grounds, with a division in the middle to separate the austere training grounds from the vibrant living quarters. Each section had its own imposing south-facing gatehouse that was larger than the Yokoya meeting hall. The massive iron-studded doors of the residential gate were flung open, offering a small windowed glimpse of the elaborate topiary inside. A herd of placid goat dogs grazed over the lawn, cropping the grass to an even length. Foreign elements had been carefully integrated into the design of the complex, which meant that gilded dragons chased carved polar orcas around the edges of the walls. The placement of the Earth Kingdom-style roof tiles cleverly matched air nomad numerology principles. Authentic dyes and paints had been imported from around the world, ensuring that the colors of all four nations were on full, equitable display. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great way to paint this picture and especially using the types of visuals that I feel like we as fans can so vividly understand and kind of conjure in our mind as we're reading this because everything from the description or using these kind of different animals like the polar orcas all the different types of architecture of the earth kingdom the colors associated with each nation it really is showing us in building this in our minds, but with these elements that we are familiar with, which is what's so interesting about this medium and the way that it's used, because there is so much material that has come before this that now we get to contextualize this book in such like a powerful way, which I fucking love. It's so good. <laughs> and it's setting the stage of Yokoya as a character. Cause, and I wanted to bring that up with you too, because that was one of the great points you made uh, last episode, especially revisiting this description, what that was like for you, kind of knowing the trajectory of uh, Yokoya and the Avatar's mansion over the course of the story. Yeah. Um, with what's going on in our world right now, I think rereading this chapter, I don't like that wall. That wall of separation is just mm -hmm. very like isolationism, kind of putting the avatar really high up on a pedestal, very godlike. It mm -hmm. kind of differs from Aang's storyline. Maybe it's because everyone thought he was dead. He was way more accessible. 
way more easy to reach. Like people can like quote unquote peasants and the lower class can approach the avatar with with their small problems and to them they're big problems and you know like mm. Aang, Aang is like ready to help but with this fortress I don't know it's kind of shitty that Jians is like hey can I um build a place where I can train the avatar in your town and they're like yeah sure and they feel special like the town the people of Yokoya and um FCE talks about it a little bit where the people of Yokoya they feel honored that the avatar is in their town practicing but then they just start resenting this wall and this separation and Jianzu doesn't care about like the problems of the town he cares about the bigger problems and so it's just like having this really powerful political figure in your town that doesn't care about your town and so mm. even though inside it's so beautiful and Kyoshi loves the inside up until this point, Yoon, the one that feels like he's the Avatar, feels trapped. Mm. I'm pretty sure he doesn't like this wall. Like, I'm pretty sure he would love to just roam around town. And then when Jianzu calls for him, he just comes back home and trains. It's kind of like a cage to him. Yeah. But it's really ironic that inside the Avatar's mansion, Kyoshi feels the most free. Hmm. Definitely. Well, and I think that your point too, it echoes so much of the beginning of The Legend of Korra. Just in that first episode, Korra feels trapped, even though she is able to kind of do all this incredible bending, you know, within the walls, she has to check with a white lotus cart before they <laughs> open the gates and she can take Naga outside. And it kind of has this moment of her just like letting loose with Naga out there trying to like run free and yeah the reason why that parallel is there is because there are two similarities between Korra and Kyoshi that Aang did not experience and that that is the generation that came before them they knew the avatar intimately and they were ready to prepare and control the trajectory of the avatar as much as possible and it all is coming from a place of, you know, of good intent, seemingly. I think more so with Korra, because that was kind of designed by Avatar Aang himself. Whereas Jianzu is, he has seen what happened with Kurok. And as we see throughout this book, and we get all of this information about how Kurok really did not do as much as an Avatar he, you know, was living during peacetime and he just kind of had fun with his powers. And I think that Jianzu saw in his friend so much of that potential. And I think so much of what he wished that he could do. And this is his way to kind of control that situation and try to mold the avatar in a way. But what he is doing is, I think, taking away the principal thing of what an avatar needs to be able to do. And that is to get out there in the world and learn from the world because they are a servant of the world. Yeah. But what I love is that there is this line. <laughs> the kids are like kind of talking shit about the mansion here. Um, <laughs> one of them says... I don't know what our parents were thinking, selling these fields to a Ganjanese. Kyoshi's lips yes. went tight. Master Jianzu was indeed from the Ganjin tribe up in the north. <laughs> Those damn Ganjins. Dude, Mama Zhang, Mama Zhang is the best. I'm I'm on the Zhang side. I'm I'm with Sokka. <laughs> yes. 
I know. I like immediately when I reread that too, I laughed so hard. And since this is going up on our podcast too, I have to do a plug for Marilyn's episode on the Great Divide because of <laughs> all of the deep dive that you did about the tribes. It's so ridiculous. Those tribes are just amazing. And I love that like we are getting to see these threads being tied in and like FCE does this during such great potent moments. And you're just like, oh yeah, I know that. That name is familiar or that town is familiar. And you're like, you're getting that context in a way that like, it feels so good because it's like all of this knowledge that we have absorbed (laughs) from the show and the whole universe of the show. And it's amazing. (laughs) As the the scene continues here, the kids are about to uh, put a hurtin' on Kiyoshi. And then what do you think you're doing? A familiar voice snarled. Kiyoshi grimaced and opened her eyes. Peace was no longer an option because now Rangi was here. <laughs> it's such a fucking opening. <laughs> and especially knowing like it's one of those things again where you know the trajectory of a character and going back to like seeing them for the first time. It's just such a wonderful moment of being like, fuck yeah, I love this character so much. <laughs> What was that like for you to kind of revisit this moment and revisit like Rangi's uh, introduction here? Oh my gosh. Um, like Kiyoshi <laughs> explaining her relationship with Rangi is the best. The way that Rangi is introduced in her description, because again, this is coming from Kiyoshi's perspective. There are so many moments of foreshadowing of her like attractions and everything here that <laughs> it is it is so much more blatant this like second time around. Like I, I got like the hint and it kind of grew as it continued throughout the story. But like looking back at it now, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we get this kind of introduction and then we get this kind of, again, this perspective from Kiyoshi where she says, uh, Rangi looked at Aoma like she was a wowed of foulness. The firebender had stepped in during the walk over. (laughs) (laughs) Daggers, shooting daggers. The entire time Rangi's whole presence in this scene, it just reminds me of the fierceness of like a drag queen stepping into a situation and just like reading people and taking complete dominance of a situation. I don't know. I I love RuPaul's Drag Race and like for some reason I just visualized this scene in my mind with Rangi just like coming out in drag and just like putting all of these people down. <laughs> but then she throws she throws like a little bit of like at one point, doesn't she call them peasants? And she's she like, does. Yeah. Yes. And, and that's and the like, crazy part. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, are you Zuko in the waterbending scroll where he was just like, shut up, you fucking peasant to Sokka? <laughs> I was like, dang, are all Fire Nations just really racist and classist? I think it's just because they have such like a competitive culture and such a like intense hierarchy that i think that there is kind of like this they inspire by like being mean (laughs) to people (laughs) and that's the way that they kind of i think they see it but it's great because rangi sizes up the situation and she says one you're not supposed to be here two don't touch the avatar shit as she sees this jar being earth bended by aoma and three don't fuck with his staff and like Kiyoshi's like, <laughs> and I noticed that I had made it third on the list of Rangi's priorities. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god, it's so good. Um, and then Aoma tries to play it cool, and this is when you know Kiyoshi notices something about her, and she realizes that she's jealous. And I love this kind of revelation of like Kiyoshi seeing that like Aoma and these other kids like they wanted to just be inside this mansion. They wanted to just be here to see all of this. And I don't know, what was it like for you to kind of revisit that scene, especially in particular? Like I said before, even at the age of 16, a lot of people can aspire to be like Kiyoshi, to have this sense of empathy and understanding Mm. of like her peers wanting to be around royalty. Like not a lot of people can say that. And I'm sure they don't Like, they never gave a shit about her situation and how she grew up as an orphan and, like, almost died from starvation. The wall around the Avatar mansion and the separation from the people. FCE really does portray everyone in, like, different shades of color. Mm. Like, no one's black and white. Everyone is relatable and yet everyone sucks. (laughs) It's, like, the best way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) I definitely agree. <laughs> yeah, like even Rongi isn't like um, pure. She's very racist. She's very classist. She has a temper. People are and... complex. It, yeah. not, it isn't just, they aren't just simple caricatures of like a given character, which again, I think it, it's why I think that this book does such a great job of utilizing the young adult novel like format but really doesn't fall prey to the things that can like make them a little bit harder to be into. Because sometimes when like young adult novels lean in so hard to those archetypes, I don't know. It's like every character does kind of have like, I'm rooting for them, but I'm also like, is that okay? (laughs) Yeah. I think I've watched so many movies and TV shows and went to film school too, where I know the beats. Like, mm-hmm. like we both know the beats to stories. But I think it's what uh, directors and storytellers and screenwriters do, and how they show the beats mm-hmm. and how they get to the beats. Like, it makes or breaks the audience's reactions to it. Like, I really love, like what you said. This is a typical hero's journey, but I love how they did this hero's journey and. Mm. Like, I kind of had a similar experience. Like, of course, this doesn't compare to Rise of Kyoshi, but the Dora movie. <laughs> Wait, is that already out? Yeah, it's already out. Like, Dora and <laughs> the Lost City of Gold. Okay, I have to go on this little rant. I don't understand why there's, like, this negative connotation with kid movies. You can make a good kid movie and grown-ups can still enjoy it. Like, everyone loves Disney. Everyone loves, like, the Harry Potter movies. Those were made for kids. Like, it's rated G. It's rated PG. So when the Dora trailer dropped, I got excited. (laughs) And so I went to go see the movie. And, oh my gosh, Colin, I was really enjoying it. Like, it's, like, of (laughs) course, there are some cringy moments. And then the girl that plays Dora, too, Isabella Moner, like, she's really talented. Oh, it's so good. Just go watch it, call <laughs> You know, when I saw the trailer, I was just like, damn, that's bold. Of all the like adaptations for them to do, the Dora TV show is like, it has such a concrete format of like, you know, talking to the audience and all of this stuff. And you're like, oh shit, like 
how are they really going to like adapt this? But I, you know what? I will give it a chance. <laughs> I, I'm very curious now to see that. But as we kind of like circle back into Yeah, this, back to Avatar. <laughs> uh, Kiyoshi is making kind of this realization of how the kids, like her bullies are feeling about this. It's interesting that she says like a feeling akin to pity settled in Kiyoshi's throat. It wasn't strong enough to hold Rangi back from doing her thing, though. In this des- <laughs> this description, in the way that she views Rangi, because again, this is from Kyoshi's perspective, the firebender stepped forward. Her fine jawline hardened, and her dark bronze eyes danced with aggression. The air around <laughs> her body rippled like a living mirage, making the strands of jet black hair that escaped her top knot float upward in the heat. It's like there is so much pent up teenage sexual angst in that moment. I feel like, (laughs) and you see it here. Like Kiyoshi is putting Rangi up in a pedestal, and Mm. you find out later why. Like when she's checking out her neck. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and you know, in in this moment, Rangi uh, stands her ground. But uh, Aoma gives her a final fuck you and just like, all right, well, tosses the charm in the air. It's like, you better find someone certified to be able to catch that. Oh, my God. What a fucking <laughs> asshole. This is when, like, all empathy is thrown out the window. It's like, no, you suck. I felt yeah. sorry for you for a second. No, fuck that. Fuck you. <laughs> And then suddenly the jar is hurtling towards the ground and Rangi tells Kyoshi to catch it. And I love this because this is such a, like, again, great way to illustrate a character and especially showing that Rangi is undeniably a firebender. The way that she (laughs) says, like, just do what she did. And like, you know, it's like imitating the position. It's just like, just do it. Just do it. (laughs) See, Shia LaBeouf would be a firebender, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then this is when I looked up the crowning bridge stance and just looking at it and picturing Rangi there was just so ridiculous. (laughs) I would be annoyed too if I was Kiyoshi. Like, can you not, please? Like, I can't do it. But Kiyoshi, you know, she still wants to protect and like protect her friend and be there for her. So she doesn't run out of the way, but she covers Rangi with her body to shield her. And this is like a total like Steve Rogers beginning of Captain America type of moment where like when he <laughs> jumps on the grenade and it's just like, no, like saving everybody else. Like doesn't matter about my body. It's all about the others. But instead of the grenade not going off, Rangi and Kyoshi tumble and their bodies touch and they blush. And yes, again, it is like it is such a punctuation to this moment of Kyoshi just kind of like staring at Rangi in awe. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, the jar stops. I love this section where pebbles start to rise up and then they begin to spell words. And it's just like it's Yoon basically Earthbend texting <laughs> from still like, you know, a short range away. But he's like, you know, using using these pebbles to create words that they can read and starts having kind of like this conversation where he's like, yo, it's Yoon. You're welcome. <laughs> I love how Rangi is just not impressed. She's like, and then Kyoshi's so impressed. She's like, how'd, yes. how'd you do that? 
Well, again, it's great because we get uh, Kyoshi's perspective again, where it says like Kyoshi couldn't spot where Yoon was watching them, but she can imagine the playful, teasing smirk on his handsome face as he performed yet another astounding act of bending like it was no big deal charming the rocks into complete submission like it's just as much sexual energy <laughs> like, towards Yoon, which is it's so amazing because it's like yes there's such strong bisexual energy in this chapter and it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> and you see like the contrast of how she views like aoma and those little twerps and how she views her other peers like Rangi and Yoon that are the same age that are like master benders. Like I love how she compares Aoma's earth bending and how she like held up the jar and the jar moved with like her breathing and and then you have Yoon like full on stopping this jar. It's so still like she tells us she describes it to us like it looks like it's on an invisible table. That's how much control Yoon has of this object that he's controlling from far away. That's insane. Mm, yeah. And this is just like painting the first impression we have of this person that is supposedly the avatar and it makes sense like this dude is so talented and mm. we see this talent immediately we see kiyoshi just like gawking over like he just revolutionized earthbending by creating like <laughs> earthbending texting and rangi just doesn't give a shit she's more concerned about him like i don't know going to his meetings on time and it's just so funny like everyone's priorities yeah. Seriously, <laughs> it's those sweet, sweet teenage priorities. It's amazing, <laughs> but also influenced intensively by their cultures and the way that they're like kind of all perceived. But, you know, eventually Rangi and Kyoshi leave after Rangi is the adult and says, Yoon, you should be training. Kyoshi, you should be doing your work. Let's break this up. <laughs> and it's like she is clearly the mom of the group of just being like, yo, you guys need to get your shit together. Let's go. Chop, chop. <laughs> <laughs> and within a moment after this kiyoshi having this like perspective of rangi like looking up to her in such a great way rangi just flat out calls kiyoshi out for being pathetic for not standing up to her bullies and the Oof. idea of not doing it is essentially like inconceivable to rangi <laughs> <laughs> she's like how can you not stand up to them like she doesn't understand why like kiyoshi is not doing that at all and kiyoshi's <laughs> smiling too it's so cute she's like oh she does care about me that's why she's yelling at me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh but it's great because it's like this difference in the bending cultures where with rangi it's aggressive it's confrontational it's just like come on you need to like you know, confront these people. <laughs> Whereas with Kyoshi, it's neutral Jing. It's waiting and listening. And it's just such a great way to show the influence of these cultures on these individuals. And, you know, again, like you said, Kyoshi smiled and she's like, oh, I was uh, trying to de-escalate the situation, she murmured. <laughs> and then like Rangi's just like, yo, no, you were going to let them hit you. And don't you dare try and claim you were doing neutral Jing. <laughs> <laughs> calling her out on her bullshit <laughs> i know <laughs> but it's like it also is kind of just like you know she's calling out on her bullshit on one end 
but it's also Rangi is just like neutral Jing is stupid. <laughs> like that's yeah. essentially what she's also saying. It is that kind of firebender superiority complex, I think. Because so many firebenders have that. It's just like, yeah, you know, we're awesome at what we do. We're badass. <laughs> But I wanted to read this top paragraph on the last page of the chapter. And again, from Kiyoshi's perspective, right on cue, Rangi had transformed from professional guardian of the Avatar, ready to scorch the bones of interlopers without flinching, into the teenage girl no older than Kiyoshi, who easily lost her temper at her friends and was kind of a raging mother hen to boot. I had to reread that sentence twice because I was like, damn. I know. <laughs> but what's so funny is that, like, Kyoshi doesn't say this. It's just her, like, it's her read on this situation without her saying it out loud. Because, again, that is so much of not who she is at this point. Like, she still doesn't have that, like, that confidence. She's hiding, I think, behind that neutral Jang. And that's like the whole thing of what we learned from like King Boomy in the early parts of Avatar was like, you know, there are like 46 different genes. <laughs> it's like neutral Jing is kind of the backbone of earthbending. And right now at this point in the story with her character growth, Kyoshi is, you know, playing it safe from neutral Jing and is like, I'm okay with just kind of like taking this, thinking about, you know, how I would kind of approach the situation. But before she can have that retort, Rangi is like, Kyoshi, my girl, you were shown up by a peasant. <laughs> it's like, oh, Rangi. Just doubling down on the fact that, like, first she calls Kyoshi pathetic, and then she's just like, you couldn't even deal with a peasant. <laughs> Rangi is just laying into her in such a hard way, but it's so funny. And again, this is like in my notes, I was just like, this is such a brutally honest, just reading to filth, like drag queen moment, I feel like. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's so harsh, but there is truth to it. But the delivery is just so nasty. <laughs> and it's kind of like a backhanded compliment too, yeah. <laughs> where she's like insulting her, but also saying that she was defeated by peasant implies that she's in a higher status than Aoma, mm. which I'm pretty sure like Kiyoshi, she talks about it later, but she loves being in the castle. Like she loves not being out there. Like she loves walking back into mm. the grounds. And so I don't know. It's just so funny how she's smiling the whole time during this whole thing. She's not taking it seriously. But at the same time, like I'm pretty sure it eats at her every day that she's not a great earthbender she's not even a good earthbender right now mm, absolutely and it, it really is kind of just like it's a sore spot for her and yeah. you know it's just like again she kind of mentions it earlier in this chapter is like Rangi didn't know about her little problem and it's so funny because by her saying that it really is like her little problem because she can't handle little things <laughs> with her earthbending <laughs> <laughs> but what's really interesting too about this interaction between Rangi and Kyoshi is that again we get from Kyoshi's perspective it had taken her weeks to figure out that the imperious girl who acted like she was still in the junior corps of the fire army only yelled at the people she let inside her shell everyone else was scum who didn't warrant the effort <laughs> damn there are so many closing lines in this chapter, in these paragraphs that are just like, you could add that just like, whoa, like afterwards, <laughs> and it would just blend in perfectly. I think they, both Kiyoshi and Rangi just need like a hype squad around them to just have these <laughs> moments of being like, oh, shit. 
And this is all coming from Kyoshi's mind, too. So she, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, like, later you see it translated, like, out physically. But Kyoshi, like, doesn't give any fucks. Mm. It's great. I think it's funny that, have you seen that one meme? of Aang being really like his mouth open because Avatar Kyoshi's boots were so big. Yes. Whoever posted that meme on Instagram put in the caption like, oh, you know what they say about big feet. And then I put in the comments, I was like, yeah, Avatar Kyoshi definitely has big dick energy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so funny here because like she can't even earth bend the smallest thing. Like she's having like... um. Oh, what is it, Colin, where you can't perform in the bedroom? Oh, oh my God. Performance anxiety? Yeah, performance anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Kiyoshi. Oh, you poor thing. (laughs) Oh, that's too good. (laughs) You know, but but what's so great, too, about this exchange is that we really kind of get to see, like, this emotional honesty between the two of them. Yeah. Um, You know, and it's like they are kind of, like, sharing this, and they're kind of, like, ribbing each other, and, like, it's cool because... Kyoshi has someone that isn't afraid to kind of lay into her like this, but it's doing it out of a sense of like, I care for you. Like you are someone that I enjoy being around and everything, but I'm still going to like, I'm going to read you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I feel. Um, but I love too that we also get this little detail about uh, Kyoshi being distracted by Rangi's armor being out of place and like her desire to like just fix it and make it right. <laughs> We get a little bit of Kyoshi's like OCD because she's just like, I need to have things in a particular order. They need to be organized. They need to be controlled, which is such a great like little additional detail about Kyoshi throughout this. And it just kind of adds another layer to her character as well. Um, Just really peeling back again, so much of the curtain on a character that we have like, you know, initially only knew so little about. And then the, you know, the the chapter concludes with like Kyoshi kind of having this, you know, she's putting in her two cents. We've seen her perspective this whole time. We've seen her, the neutral Jing really being able to kind of sit and wait and listen. And then at the end of this chapter where she says, why resort to violence? I have strong heroes like you to protect me. Raggy made a noise like she wanted to vomit. And you know that, like, Kiyoshi is, like, knows that this is the reaction she's going to get out of Rangi. And it's this, like, just amazing, playful ribbing. She thinks she's superior, but, like, don't, don't, like, you know, put her up on this kind of superfluous pedestal, I think, is what she doesn't really gel with and kind of ticks <laughs> her off. <laughs> I don't know. It's like this weird, um, sometimes Rangi is modest, but sometimes she's really confident and cocky. It, yeah. It honestly depends in every situation, I guess. <laughs> she's kind of unpredictable. And I think that's why Kiyoshi loves her. But yeah. um, going back to their friendship. And like this is the first person we meet that cares about Kiyoshi. And mm. we meet her when she was nine. And she didn't have anyone to care for her. Even though Rangi gives her, like, the hardest time all the time. At the end of the day, she loves it. Like, she loves her. She loves that. She cares about her. And I wanted to talk about queer representation in this book. Because it's, Mm. oh my gosh, it's so important. And so I really love how FCE wrote, like, right off the bat, what this is, chapter two, wrote in Kiyoshi's queer thoughts. Like, these queer thoughts... If you were to put it in a Nickelodeon show, it would never happen. 
you know, when Legend of Korra ended and everything that happened with that final shot of Korra and Asami holding hands, walking into the portal and people saying like, oh, well, this came out of nowhere. This wasn't anything. You know, everyone is entitled to their opinion. But I think that especially when we had Turf Wars, the comic that followed immediately after that, and 100% confirmed that that was the direction that they were going, it is something where that representation matters in such a profound way. One of my good friends, his friend, when she saw that moment, it was such a profound experience and a moment for her being bisexual to see something like that on an animated show. And even like in that kind of context, it's like it's so empowering because, again, I think going back to our discussion when we were doing our uh, discussion of like the interview you did with Olivia Hack and Michaela was like, you know, that representation matters in such a huge way because, you know, for the white community, we've had representation all throughout and it's time that it becomes more balanced And that people who didn't have the spotlight get that chance to be able to, you know, see their heroes and see the people that are like them in a medium that they can connect with on an emotional level. And I love that we are seeing that already. They don't shy away from it at all in this book. And I was not sure how deeply they were going to dive into it. But already from chapter two, they are starting to bring this in. And it's not a big deal. It just is. And I think that that is like the best part about that. And it's not ambiguous. It's not like the last shot with Korra and Asami holding hands where it could be interpreted as innocent and platonic or it could be interpreted as more romantic. Like in chapter two, there are a lot of gay thoughts. (laughs) And and it's amazing because um, I said this off record when I was talking to Colin in the past, but I'm bisexual too. And so like reading this book for the first time, it was insane. Like I grew up watching Kiyoshi in high school. Just to have like this whole Avatar universe to include Kiyoshi's feelings and her exploring this bisexuality and and her sexuality. And later we'll see in the upcoming chapters, like it's, oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, the cool thing about what they did here with a fantasy world like this, I think that sometimes with a lot of traditional fantasy, you won't see any kind of same-sex relationship or in that kind of like, you know, same descriptive. A lot of fantasy over the years is, for the most part, pretty heteronormative. It's been changing more recently, and it's not to say that there wasn't any before, but like predominantly that was the case. And what's great is that, you know, you have this world that even though to us, it seems like an old world because they don't have machines and things like that. There is that kind of almost that sense of like, oh, because it's an old world, it doesn't have the same kind of feeling like they don't approach sexuality because we in the future are so much more open. It's just like, but that's not the truth. Like people were so open with shit, like back in the Roman days and like, (laughs) you know, everything was much more fluid. But the thing is, is like the avatar world, they are basically saying that like, no, like this is the way that these feelings are and they're valid. And I think that so much of that too, and what really allowed that, I think for the Avatar universe in a big way was Turf Wars 
uh, the like the comic that came out after Korra because you get this kind of monologue from Kaya who is talking with Korra and Asami and saying like, you know, I remember my experience with my first girlfriend and then talks about how the mm-hmm. air nomads were okay with like loving whoever they loved because that was at the core of like what they, you know, who they were and what their philosophy was. And then the water tribe and all these different customs of like people kind of how they kind of viewed it. It is real in this world. And I think that so much of what this book does is that, again, not only with this, but with so much else with expanding this world is that it just it peels back more and more of the curtain and the layers to see a world that is just even more rich and diverse than we thought it could even become. And it was already rich and diverse to start out with. (laughs) Yeah. And pushing the boundaries, too, and pushing the progressiveness wheel that Mike and Brian started when Avatar came out. What, it was 2005 to 2008. This cartoon show on Nickelodeon was so progressive. And every time they release more Avatar content, it gets more progressive. Oh, this book. And just writing about a queer character is phenomenal. And it's definitely, I think, one of the most positive things coming out of this year. Because this year has been such a shit show in America. Mm. Just when you think you could lose hope for where this country is going, like this book definitely shines the light on like, no, when there is resistance, there is fire as well. Mm. We will bring the fire and Kiyoshi definitely will bring the fire later. Yeah, absolutely. It just it really is. You know, again, in the same way of a lot of these like other young adult novels that have come in the time, that is also such a young adult novel trope of like the idea of this young protagonist being the the spark that lights the flame to use like the Star Wars analogy. It's so much of, (laughs) you know, but seriously, you look at like you look at Harry Potter, you look at the Hunger Games, you look at the Maze Runner, like all of these young adult novels and Percy Jackson, too. It is about these young adults coming in and disrupting a system and like coming in and kind of really making an impact on the world around them. And I think it is so tangible that we're already starting to see Jianzu's influence and the way that he's built up this town, this mansion in Yokoya, and how he views the Avatar and the environment that he is building for the Avatar versus like Kyoshi's empathy and her willingness to kind of look at the perspective of even someone that she disagrees with, who is a farmer, who is on the ground, who is busting their butt and like is from a family in a smaller town. Like those are the kind of interactions that Kiyoshi is having. And I think it just, it's already, we're seeing her set on this trajectory in this chapter nine years later. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Any final thoughts? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think I said all that I could say for chapter two. I'll save it for the next chapters. <laughs> <laughs> I know you could just keep talking about this forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we will be returning for uh, chapter three. Again, thank you all so much for listening and being a part of this kind of experiment and everything that we're doing here with teaming up to bring this kind of mini series. You know, obviously, we've got some time before we're going to really see some substantial news from like the live action show. So I feel like this is going to be it's going to be a nice journey, some nice content as we're kind of, you know, waiting for a lot of that to pour out with everything. 
But yeah, uh, be sure to tune in for our next episode. And Marilyn's going to tell you a little bit about her podcast and where you can find that and check that out. Yes, um, check out Beyond Bending Podcast over at um, Spotify, iTunes. I even uploaded, we have a website, beyondbending.com. If you want to download the episodes and take it on the go. If you think you hate the Great Divide episode, listen to, (laughs) (laughs) shameless plug, listen to my episode. I will try to convince you that that episode is pretty okay. So go ahead and check that out. You can find us on social media. Just look up Beyond Bending Podcast. And uh, where can people find you, Colin? Uh, So you can find us at Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram and Portalcast Pod on Twitter. And then our uh, website is legendofportalcast.com. We are also on iTunes and Spotify. And you can also listen to the episodes on our website as well. And yes, as you will kind of be seeing, if maybe you're listening to it here, or maybe if you're listening to it on a different platform, we are uh, uploading these to YouTube as well. Uh, We're going to be linking uh, a link for our YouTube page or kind of having it in the description uh, to be able to search for us that is going to be dedicated for this mini series so that, you know, you can be able to see the content all in its entirety because we are going to be going back and forth eventually between our two podcasts with all of these. But if you're looking to kind of listen to them uh, all in a singular place too, that's where we're going to have it. And uh, yeah, um, and also be on the lookout. Uh, Marilyn is putting together some like artists of the day stuff as well. I'm, I'm sure you'll be seeing that um, because there is already fan art coming out about this novel. And it's it is amazing. It is so oh my satisfying <laughs> to see these characters. And like, I know, I think last episode we brought up uh, Kakashi 95, like, they are crushing it right now with these amazing illustrations of all the different characters. They even did like this poster and everything. It's just, it's so good. Go and check that out. <laughs> <laughs> Flamio, hot stuff. Let us leave. <laughs>